This has been a special week for me and my family, and it is so great to have my father here with us. I, those of you who are new, you, you haven't heard this, but I told some of the story of the sale of our family home after 63 or 4 years there and moving to another place where my mom has Alzheimer's disease and in, is in the uh, uh, memory care unit. But that's given my father the opportunity to be here and that he uh, didn't just quit getting into the assisted living place. He started a choir. So um, still making a difference wherever you are. And I was trying to put uh, John uh, on notice that you're going to be scrutinized very carefully in your choral conducting today. But, Dad, it's so good to have you here in the uh, in the church family and um, hope that you will also sense God's presence among his people. Uh, This building thing that Chuck showed you, too, I'm not even dead yet. At least I don't think so. Um, It just is overwhelming, though I'm so grateful. And uh, Student Life Center, is the dream I always had is, is there a place where faculty and students and the people in the university could actually have their lives connect? Uh, Jeff Leo, one of our pastors, just graduated. And Jeff, we needed that, right? Because as the students would always say, President Waybright, you always talk about community, but where do people in Chicago meet, especially in in winter? It's cold around here. And so we began talking about this for 12 years until finally enough people supported it and put it there. So I think they just had heard me talk ad nauseum about the same thing over and over again, that lives are changed in a Christ-centered community. And But they can't change unless our lives touch one another. <laughs> And uh, so I kept, and and that's what I talk about here all the time too, including this morning. All right, see, you knew I was going to get there yet. And I brought my football back again. Uh, Newcomers, I saw quite a few of you here. Uh, I started this shorter series that I've called Three Essential Connections by telling this well-known story about Vince Lombardi, uh, probably the the greatest NFL coach in, in the history of the National Football League, and uh, how after winning championship after championship, he would start the football season in the same way. He would get all his players out there. They're veterans, most of them. He would make this dramatic entrance, you know, into the training room. He would carry one of these and he would hold it up and he would say to these men something that some may think is silly, but they wouldn't have said it to him. They would say, men, this is a football and then he would start from that foundation, the basic of the shape of this, and every, to show how this game is to be played. Because football is a very complex sport. Any of you who played it know that. And yet the things that you have to do is to get back to those essentials again. You've got to make sure that you're blocking right and tackling right and doing the basics. Because you can add all of these kinds of things on top of it. But if you're not doing the essentials right, you're not going to win the game. So I, I took that as an illustration. Let's see here. Look at that. Uh, I, as I told the first service, you know, there was a time in John's, John Sutton's life when he had to choose between being in music or being an NFL wide receiver. So we're glad that you chose the right. I may have exaggerated just minimally right there. But if you see that illustration, what I've thought is we've started this fall is that when you come to a church like Lake Avenue Church that has all of these complexities and all of these things going on, that we need to stop sometimes and say, this is a church. And, and ask, what must happen when a church gathers? I mean, there's so many things we do and can do, but there are certain things that must happen 
if we're going to be what God would have us to be. And as I talk about the church, you know, I, I say it's not a building and it's not my work. and It, it is God's family. God's family that he calls together in this difficult and hurting world. A family where our lives can be shaped, where we can find hope, where we can find health, transformation. A family that is open to all through faith in Jesus. Because that's how we get in. We enter through what Jesus has done. We give our, our lives to him. But it is open to everyone, regardless of your background. Regardless of what you bring into the church with you, you can be in the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And God says, I'm not going to be done building that family until there are people in it from every tribe and language and nation. Now, just to keep that football metaphor going, just as football games have a goal, and any of you who played, you know what the goal is? You have to win the game, all right? You've got to win the game. So, so, too, God has said there is a goal for a church and a church like Lake Avenue. And that is we are to glorify him. Now, I know that's very religious language, um, but it's, it's not that hard to understand. It means that in this difficult and darkened world, God wants to declare that he is here and he wants people to know what he is like. And to glorify means to reflect, to reflect what a person is like. So he plants a church like ours in in a community like this, to reflect to this world that God is in this place and to show this world a little bit of what God is like. And so he, he draws together such a diverse kind of person in his family so that everyone will know that there is opportunity to know the one who made the universe. And also he is able to demonstrate his reconciling work available to all people. And also he is, shows how he can bring lives together into right relationship with him and with one another, even with people as different as are here in this church family. He declares his glory. And when people say, but, but wait a minute, Pastor, um, do you know what kind of people you have in your church? You have all these imperfect people in there. Do you know that? And I usually say, aren't you happy about that? Then there's hope for you, isn't there? You know, that's what we have to offer. We don't try to pretend that we can come in through our own merits. There, there is hope for all. And so we glorify him. We show the world that if there's hope for us, there's hope for them. We show that we have a forgiving and merciful and gracious God. So together we have to declare God's glory as we worship together as we do now. But also individually, what's to happen in a church is that our lives should grow as you are in this place. And by growing, I mean we become more like what God created us to be. And the Bible says that's more like the way Jesus was. And so you should come in, sometimes just really wrestling with things, sometimes failing, right? We come in and we'll have communion today and remember that God loves us and what he did to provide forgiveness and to know it's enough. And we go out of this place, prayerfully being more than when we came in, with this goal that when people see our lives, they're not going to see perfection yet. But they should be seeing God doing things in us. And when they see us at our workplace or in our schools or in our families, they'll say, God must be real because, look, he's, he's changing you and me. Now, I'll come back to the football metaphor again. Just as to get all the way to a championship is a long season. And sometimes you feel like there are losses and, and struggles. 
so too this thing of us growing to become what God would have us to be sometimes feels like a long season. Sometimes we wonder, why is it taking me so long to get well and what is God doing to do his work in me? And he says, I planted my family there in a community like this. You need to be connected to that family because God's main life-giving, life-transforming work is meant to happen through the life of his people. Did you know that? God does his work in so many ways, but the central place for God to do his work in our lives is in a community just like this one. But for that to happen, if you say, why isn't that happening as much in my life? Or Two things. It may be that our church must become more the kind of community where God can do his work. And I'm praying for that. You know that. And I pray you are too. And here's our hope. If you and I change individually, our, our family will change too. So we, we must pray that that will happen, that we will become more and more the kind of family where God can really do his work in the lives of anyone who come to seek to know him. But it may be that God is already doing his work here, as I believe he is, and you're not connected to the community, to the family, in such a way that his life-changing power is flowing both to you but also through you to others. So that's why I have this series, Three Essential Connections. Because of all the things that we might do as a church, at least these three should be a part of your connection to, to a family like this one. The first week was on worshiping together. And that is putting God at the center. All week, other things seem to be important. We gather into this place. We sing praise to Him. We open this His Word and see what He has to say. We put Him at center stage and know He's in control. We must worship together. Or we will really not live in such a way with God at the center of our, of our life as a church or of our lives individually. But second, for this to happen, we have to be involved in one another's lives. What I used to say at Trinity is true here too. If we don't connect with one another, we can't be involved in, in helping shape one another's lives. So we have to get into communities, small enough groups where we can pray for one another and encourage one another and sometimes even do some correcting of one another, saying not this way but that. And then last week, Pastor John Seacrest brought a message talking about the importance of us serving, both serving one another, that we're not meant to just sit and listen, but serving, and also serving in our world. Now, here I want to ask, how many of you were here back in the 60s during the ministry of Ray Ortland, Pastor Ray Ortland? Oh, well, look, the first, the nine o'clock service has so many more. Well, then I, do I have some news for you? Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland in the 1960s also saw what God had intended to do through a church family like this one in a community like this. And he said the only way this happens is for us to be people who are committed to God and to the family. And he called the church to three commitments. Uh, to God, to one another, and to the world. Very similar to the ones that God has put on my heart. To God, and particularly in the church, to our worshiping him, to one another and finding those places of community and to service so that we can carry his message from this place out into the world. And so that call to commitment is what I want to bring this series to completion with. And I'm calling it a focused commitment to Christ. A focused commitment. Now what am I talking about? Now we're going to be looking at one of the great texts in the Bible about that. Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 14 that Holly just read for us so, so wonderfully. But I want to start this way. I want to ask first what I mean by focused commitment. E even people who um, never go to church. 
uh, have heard people talk about the power of focus. The power of focusing on a goal or heading somewhere. It's just the stuff of which all of the uh, self-help seminars are made up and the motivational speakers. They're all saying our lives can make a difference, but we've got to get focused and and heading in a, in, a, in a certain direction, so we all know about that. And so I pulled up some of the YouTube self-help seminar speakers just to see how they got at this thing. And one illustration that I saw in several of them is the illustration of a magnifying glass. I'm looking out for business people. You've probably heard this a thousand times. They say, listen, uh, you have rays of light, and on even days when it's not 100 degrees... Uh, <laughs> They have certain power, but if you take that magnifying glass, you can focus those rays and then they'll put it over some sticks or something and show how it can start a fire and say, look, that begins with the power of focus. Well, I thought that's a pretty good illustration, but it's a pretty modest one. So I thought perhaps we could think more of the super focused power of a laser beam. Now, I I did balk at this a little bit because I know that Caltech is across the street and JPL is not far and you know this church is loaded with scientists and engineers which I found out after the nine o'clock service yet again (laughs) so I thought here I am pastor that I am walking in the ground where this church knows a whole lot more about it than I do but I wanted to think about the difference between a natural light bulb and a laser beam And so I went on to the University of Colorado website. You might say, why did you go on the University of Colorado website? It's because they had a section for children, and I thought I might be able to (laughs) understand that one. And so we pulled up what they have there about the difference. Uh, A natural light bulb is one that has light that is diffused and sheds light in, in many different places. But it points out that a laser light is different. And it points out that a laser light is different in at least two ways that it is pressed and it is parallel with the light moving in one general direction, that every part of the beam has almost the same direction, it diverges very little, so it can move in a certain direction and and has enormous, enormous capability. Um, Many of the scientists who came through by door said, the word you should have used is coherence. So the word we're looking for is coherence. Right now, it's something that brings everything together and focuses it, points it in a certain direction. And you know what can happen through laser beams, don't you? It can burn a hole right through a diamond. We have some of our surgeons and physicians here in this church who use laser to do remarkable, precise surgery in which you're able to rid people of certain things that don't need to be there without collateral damage around. It can carry, carry vast amounts of information. So when you think about that kind of focus and the capability of it, what I mean by a focused life is a life in which all of the resources and background, all that we are, is brought together, it's gathered up and focused toward a certain goal. A, a person that I have found who lives a a, a focused life usually seems so alive. And it's not that that person has more life. It's just that that life has been pressed, it's been brought together and sent in a certain direction. That's what I mean by a focused commitment. Now second, what does a Christ-centered focused life look like? And this brings me to one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. 
Church folks, you know that's true. I, I cite this text so often. It's Paul's testimony. It's so simple. It's so clear. Philippians chapter 3. I'll just show you again a part of it. Verses 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul talks about the new focus he has had in his life since he met Jesus. And where he wants to head to be a life that, that shows what Christ is like. And then he says, It's not that I have obtained all of this. It's not that I have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, he said, I, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But I'll tell you this one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That is a remarkable testimony. The first part of it to me that is remarkable is Paul's humility. That's one of the reasons I love this text. This is the great apostle Paul, the one through whom so many churches were founded. So much of our New Testament was written by him. And yet you see, he looks at himself, he says, listen, I'm not trying to pretend that I am yet all that God would have me to be. Near the end of his life, he knew that he was still in process. He knew there, there was still a work that God would have for him to do. So he has this wonderful, inviting humility. But on the other side, he doesn't have this, uh, this weak sort of way that I hear some of us sort of view this. Well, of course, I'm not perfect, but look around you, pastor. Nobody else in this church either. And Well, I'm just, God will have to just do, put up with my, my little sin-filled, inadequate life. No, no, no. We know that where we are isn't where God would have us to be, and it's not where we want to stay, right? And so we, we find out something about God that He gives us hope He hasn't given up on us. And even if we failed again this morning driving in the church, we come into this place and remember that God is so gracious and is ready to start with us again, and we leave this place pressing on toward the high calling in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's, that word for focus is there twice. First in verse 12 and verse 14, I press on in verse 12 to take hold of that for which he's taken hold of me. And then in verse 14, I press on toward this goal for which God has taken hold of me. Do you see that? Now, come around the pulpit for a minute. I want to show you something that I think is so interesting, but I found that the nine o'clock hour didn't think was as interesting as, as, I, as I thought it was. The word for press on that is used here twice um, in verse 12, I press on, I press on, is also in verse 6. If you don't have your Bible, you'll just have to trust me on this one. He said, I'll tell you about my zeal. I persecuted the church. Now that word for persecute is the very same word that he uses for pressing toward becoming like Christ. Don't you find that? Yeah, see, I got a, a few more responses. <laughs> what on earth do those two things have to do with one another? I used to persecute Christians. Now I press on to something else. Well, the word that's translated that really means to pound. And I think he's doing this wonderful word play. Uh, he, he's saying, you know what I used to do? I'd go out there and pound Christians. And they were scared to death of them. You, you can read about that. But now I've met Jesus. And now I pound my life, all that I am and I have together, and focus it toward this Christ Jesus who gave his life for me and gave himself for me. So I had to think about 
How did that happen, that transformation? He says, now I'm going to gather up all I have and press on to becoming like Christ. Well, you pull back and see what was his life like before he met Jesus. And in verses 5 and 6 of Philippians 3, he tells us a little bit about it. And I guess the simplest way I can put it to you is this. The life that the Apostle Paul had before he became a follower of Jesus was what most people in his world would have thought a sweet life. I mean, really, it was a sweet life. Almost everything that his people would have wanted to live for, he had. What am I talking about? He came from a respected family. He came from the best tribe among his people. He would have had one of those celebrity names that kind of, you know, gave you a heads up on things. Number two, he was a respected member of his community. He was a leading Pharisee. And I know we often think of Pharisees as being intolerant, but they were respected people among their people. They were viewed as having lives that were right. People wanted to become like them. So here's a respected man from a good family. And if any of you have been in school forever, he was one of the best educated people in his entire world. He had somehow had the privilege of studying with one of the great scholars in his world, a man named Gamaliel. And being one of his students, uh, he would have not only been at one of our schools an assistant professor, he would have been a full professor writing the books. So uh, if you're in a school, you know how much respect that, that would have gained. And there's all sorts of evidence that Paul was a very wealthy man. Uh, someday I might try to show that to you. In other words, these things that so many of our, the people in our world live for, if I only had that, then I'd really be a lot. Paul had respect, career, um, uh, education, uh, material wealth. He, he had it all. And that's why some people are so shocked when they find out that he said, I view all of that now as rubbish. What happened? And you know what happened, so don't you? Acts chapter 9. Paul had been living pounding Christians. He was responsible for the death of some like Stephen. And then he heard that there were some of these followers of Jesus that were called people of the way. That's what Christians were called then. People of the way who lived in Damascus. So he went to some of the leaders and he got permission to go to Damascus so that he could kill some more of, the, of us. And on the way to Damascus, this is where this laser beam illustration really comes in well. The laser beam of all laser beams broke into his life. The light of the world focused all of his energies and Paul was blinded. You know the story. Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. And Paul essentially said, well, I'm not really persecuting you. I'm persecuting those irritating people who say they're your followers. They're the ones I don't like. And Jesus pretty much says the same thing. Because I belong to them and they belong to me. And then Paul found out something, and I, I pray that you have, and if you haven't, listen carefully. He found out something that changed the rest of his life. That in spite of the fact that now he knew that he was known, and, and that this one who knew him was the Lord of the universe, the, the maker of heaven and earth, that in spite of all in Paul's past, he wasn't written off. That the same Jesus who met him didn't leave him blind, didn't put him down, but forgave him. And not only forgave him, but drew him into service so that his life could truly be alive and his life could count.
Again, I'll tell you, in our world, I think most people, when they look at Paul's words, think about people in uh, business, in professions, and the things that Paul says in verse 8 are rubbish, are the very things most people in our world are living for. What does he mean? Because once he became a follower of Jesus, he still remained a well-educated man, right? He still remained a person from a good family. But he knew those kinds of things, career and wealth and education, meant nothing in eternity. That someday they would be gone and would have no eternal benefit. But he, in meeting Jesus, had found a way to gather it all up, pound it all together, and use that for the glory of God. See, this is a life that has Christ. I press all that I am and all that I have toward the goal toward which, for which God has called me heavenward. And I'll tell you, if you'd met him, you would have met a man who was alive. His life had a spiritual intensity. It had a ferocity. And you know as well as I do that so many people who go to church don't have that sort of energy for God at all. In fact, usually what we sort of say is, well, are you a follower of Jesus? And the response is, well, what else could I be? I grew up in the United States. I'm not a Buddhist or a Muslim. I must be, yeah. Well, Pastor, why are you asking me this? I've been in this church my whole life. I, I was even dedicated here. Pastor, you know I show up, you know, when it's convenient. Oh, I, when I golf game or my kids have something, I won't go. But yeah, what are you asking me that question for? Or especially this. Pastor, you know, my religion is a private thing. It's real to me, but it's a private thing. So I, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. The way that most of us, even some people who go to church, think about a relationship to God is it's sort of an add-on. I sort of dabble with that. I'll, I'll, you know, I have all these other things that I love to live for, but if I could just have a little spirituality over here, then, then but Jesus won't allow for that. He breaks into our lives. He declares, as he did to Paul, he lets us know who he is. And then he says, if you're going to live, you have to be remade. He tells us what we already know. There are things in our lives that need to be changed. They need to be forgiven. And he says to us, count the cost. It's either I'm going to be Lord of all, or don't claim to follow me at all. It is always with Jesus a call to complete commitment. He turns to you and me and he says, what I'm going to do in your life is I'm going to remake you so that your life is like mine. Now, are you in or not? And what Paul's testimony was is the testimony of all who trust Jesus. One thing I do. I press all that I am and have toward the goal for which God has called me. And he gave his life Incredible vitality. That's what I mean about a Christ-centered, focused life. Now third, how does that start? And look at verse 12 with me again. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Do you see two take-holds? But there's one take-hold that precedes the other one. See, Paul says, before I could take hold of my life and focus it, I have to realize that somebody already took hold of me. And, and this is true. You're with me here, aren't you? All believers who have found real vitality in their lives with Christ know that God broke into their lives. Because we know we wouldn't go there by ourselves. 
We want to live for ourselves. So we don't strut around and say, well, look what I did. We, when you watch these self-help kind of gurus, it's always this kind of thing. You know, I used to be as boring as you are. And uh, they don't say that, but it's always implied. Uh, but look at me. Um, I focused my life and now I'm a multi-multi-millionaire and, and you can become like me. So go out and buy my book. Um, but Christians, you and I can never have that kind of pride. And when I read Paul's testimony for his whole life, he couldn't believe that God wanted him, that loved him that much. He always knew that the only reason he was in the family of God is that God had taken, that he was loved before he could ever love. He knew that there's no way he could change his own life in such a way that he would become a good enough person that maybe God would say, oh, I'd like you in my family. No, he knew he would never get hold of it. He knew it was only because of the grace of God that he was in God's family. At the end of his life, he would say, listen, look at me. I am the worst of all sinners. And he meant it. He could never get over the fact that he had been involved in, in killing his brothers and sisters in Christ and that God loved him anyway. But you know what that means? If you and I have that spirit, that means, do you see what we have to offer our world? That when we have people in our world who just say, but I've messed up so much. I've um, I made some big wrong decisions in business. I've made some moral decisions that are wrong. I really messed up my marriage and my family. We have the opportunity to say, God knows that. And there's hope. Paul felt that if there was hope for him, there truly was hope for anybody. What we have to offer is the family of people who know we don't deserve to be here, right? We don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God, but we have found Him calling us in and offering us forgiveness. And what we have to offer this world is a place of healing and of hope and a renewed life. That nobody has to think I have to remain a second-class person for all of my life. Paul knew that it was only by the grace of God and that God wanted him and that God called him into service. We who are alive to God just know that we've been taken held of before we ever held anything. So, uh, when people are grabbed by God, we come in so many ways. Sometimes there's a big miracle. It doesn't usually happen that we can't deny. There's one man in our church, I'm going to have him give his testimony or i tell you who he is, who, um, a top scientist, a materialist, and then God did a miracle that he couldn't deny. Now, what was he going to do with that? Just his whole worldview was exploded by God breaking in. Or, or a few weeks ago, do you remember uh, Claudia, the uh, woman, the, the attorney uh, from Germany who came over here with her boyfriend and then he dumped her and, uh, and had a hard time passing our American bar exam and in discouragement went walking past the chapel on a Sunday night and heard this music and came walking in and heard Pastor Albert doing one of his comedy routines and uh, came walking in <laughs> and... Um, uh, she, she sensed that God was in that place. She, she sensed that there was uh, there's something good. She sensed the peace of God as she had never experienced it before and then came again and then gave her life to Christ. And now I'm telling you, she is alive to God. 
Sometimes God who respects us will just deal with it. We're just sort of soberly and quietly looking into this. And then God breaks in and lets us know it is real. I pray, I'll just let you know, I pray that every time you come into this church, that somehow God will break into your life and say, I am here. And I want you to trust me. I hope you'll have one of those Zacchaeus-like experiences. Luke 19, this man hiding up a tree. I'm just going to look into this religion a little bit. Jesus comes right up to the tree and looks up at him. And Zacchaeus says, oh, Jesus, um, I don't want anyone to notice me. I just came to see you today. And Jesus basically saying, no, no, no. You did not come to see me. I came to meet you. I'm telling you, what do you do when God breaks into your life and you know he's ready to meet you? You either are going to run and hold him at arm's length or you're going to embrace it and say, Father, here's my life. I press it together and I give it to you. And I want you to know that one of the surest ways to know that your life belongs to him is that our lives take on just new energy and vitality. I'm not saying easy. (laughs) Mark that down. Uh, but even the tough days become these adventures where we wonder, God, I don't know what you're doing. I wonder how you're going to work in the midst of this one. Uh, it begins an adventure to live life that is not mundane. Um, I, I think I love to read stories, you know. And I think in some ways God built into the great stories of our world this fact that when people experience a great adventure, almost always the adventure comes to them. Have you ever noticed that? The great stories told in every culture and that we love to pass on to our children are these adventure stories where it's not the person searching for an adventure, it's the adventure comes to them. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. I'm telling you, Frodo and Bilbo Baggins wanted to stay in the Shire. But that ring came to them. Gandalf would say, you have been called. And it's a great adventure. I was thinking of Wizard of Oz. Dorothy didn't want that tornado to hit Kansas. But it did and swept her into the greatest adventure of her life. And then I was thinking of the Peter Pan story where Wendy and Michael and John are just playing in the children's room in the nursery and Peter Pan comes in. They didn't want this to happen and it swept them into all this adventure with crocodiles and all sorts of things. What is it like... To become a follower of Jesus. It is God breaking into the nursery room. It is us showing up at church just thinking I'll punch the clock for a while. And God saying I am here. What are you going to do with me? And and when God breaks in we just don't dabble with him or put him at at a second place. There's so many different testimonies that you and I have. But one of the things we all share in common is this. We know that we've been taken hold of. We know we don't deserve it. We know we weren't living right. But that Jesus came and lived the life we should have been living but could not in our own strength. And then died the death that you and I deserve but now don't have to because he did. And we say thank you. Fourth. What are we to do to focus our lives? What do we do when God breaks in and grabs hold of us? Look at what Paul says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
And then I press on to take hold. I press toward the goal. This faith thing. Um, Some preachers I've heard say, what is faith like? Have you ever heard this illustration? Faith is like sitting in a chair. Have you ever heard that? So you have a chair up here. And uh, you don't know if that chair is going to hold you. But faith is taking that step to to sit down. And then you find out uh, it holds you. You don't do it. You just... And I say, I think maybe faith perhaps begins that way. But living a life of faith isn't like that at all. (laughs) There are these conscious choices that we keep having to make, my way or his. Will I turn from this and go God's way or just keep living the way I have before? And And the Bible keeps talking about that. It's hard to put this together. It is God who does it, but we have a responsibility as people made in the image of God to commit ourselves to Him and to give ourselves to Him and to use what He's given us to pursue godliness. I'll I'll just show you a couple of the verses. Philippians 2. Now you work out your own salvation, Paul said, with fear and trembling. Oh, it's all my responsibility, we think. But then, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God at work, but we have a responsibility. You see, it's both. How does that fit together? Well, I'll have Pastor Jeff or Pastor John explain that someday. All I'm going to tell you is they do. Or or let's look at Ephesians. It's God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. And then right into chapter 4, you make every effort to live as... In other words, you know you've been taken hold of. It's only by God's grace and only through His power. But at the same time, God gives us this great opportunity to make a focused commitment to bring together all that we are and have that he's given us anyway and saying, it is yours, I, I press toward that goal. And what is that goal that we want? It's in verse 10. Look at it. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings so that I might become like Him. Glorifying God. See it? Having Him at the center of our life. And this becoming like Him, so much of it centers in what is to happen in the life of His family. Um, before I end, I can, I can just hear people pushing back at me in at least two ways. And if you're not pushing back, I'll tell you how you should be. Uh, one, people who say, but listen, look around you. You know a lot of churchgoers and, and, and they don't have that kind of vitality and commitment. What do I say to that? Well, my response is, be patient. This is a long journey sometimes. And God is going to do His work in each of His children. Uh, so be patient. Maybe they're not in. But if they are, God will do his work. And mostly, I think I should say what, what Jesus said to Peter in John 21. Do you know that? Peter, after, God make, after Jesus makes this kind of focus call to him, he said, well, what about this John over here? Do you remember, remember saying that? What about him? And do you remember what Jesus said? What is that to you? It's between me and him. You follow me. That's what I want you to hear God saying to you today. You follow me. And then this, this other pushback that always call, comes. But Pastor Greg, it sounds like you're calling 
this whole Lake Avenue church to be made up of fanatics. <laughs> My answer is no. Not in the way the world views fanaticism. You know, a fanatic usually is only focused on one area of life. And uh, I, the problem with fanatics is, is not that fanatics are too intense. It's that they're too intense about too few things. They're only fanatical about a, a political position or, or natural health remedies or whatever else. And if you're not as fanatic about that one thing as they are, uh, then, then they think you're not the right kind of person. But they're not fanatical about the whole of life, about forgiving people and loving people and really longing for the best for people, fanatical about wanting to show the beauty of Jesus to people. You see, the word that the uh, scientists who came through my door used is coherence. I really like that. We need someone who will help bring together all that we are. These gifts that I have and this background that I have. And, and the Bible tells us we find it in Jesus. He will say to you and me, we might say, but, but I grew up in this wounded home. Sometimes I was even abused. And God says, I know about that and I'm ready to provide healing and hope. But even that is not outside of my control. I will use you because this world is filled with people who have experienced that. And you can go to them and tell them there is a community of healing and of hope. For those of you who are still facing battles with addictions, but you are giving all to Jesus and beginning to find freedom, you can go to this world where it almost seems like everyone is battling some sort of addiction, doesn't it? And say to them, you know that's not how we were supposed to live. And almost everybody will say, yes, I know that. There is forgiveness and hope. If I can find it, you can find it. This is the work that God will do in us. And it's this work to which I call us as a community and us as individuals. And so I would like you to take out this one commitment card. For the next few weeks, this will just be a private thing with you and, and with God. Pastor Ray Ortland called us to a new commitment to God, to one another, and to the world. And you'll see this is very similar. But here it's within the life of the church. To worshiping God together with your brothers and sisters. To finding a place of community. And if you haven't found it, to beginning to pray for three or four people that you can meet with and have coffee with and share life with in the life of the church and to a life of service that your life too can make a difference. Uh, we're going to be receiving communion. Pastor Jeff Leo is going to come and lead us. As the music is being played or as the choir is singing, I want you to be praying about your own focused commitment to perhaps one or maybe all three of these areas so that you too may know Christ and become like him. Jeff, if you will come, he's going to help us to begin where we always have to begin by realizing what it took to take hold of us, someone giving his life in our place. God bless you, Jeff, as you do.